I like to cook. Well, I like it enough. Enough to have various spices and things in the cabinet that help add that little something that make all the difference. Every now and then I go through that cabinet of spices and check the expiration date. We've moved around enough in our lives that it hasn't it has happened before that I've pulled something out and remembered what city we actually lived in last when we had that spice or bought that spice. Or have said to ourselves, Did we, was Gabe even born? Look, when we bought this spice, Gabe wasn't even born. I just recently threw out a big thing of coriander for some particular thing that my sister and I made as part of our Christmas baking back in 2012. How long do these spices keep their potency? Does the expiration date really matter? Jesus refers to his followers as the salt of the earth in our gospel lesson this morning. And the emphasis he's making in this illustration about the values of salt are not about particularly the values of salt, but about preserving the values of salt. Because once salt has lost its value, what use is it anymore? And you know this, right? If it gets wet and clumpy, it can't work. If it stayed out in the air for too long, all of a sudden it loses its saltiness. So Jesus is inviting his followers to consider how they preserve the values that they carry as his children, as his disciples, into the world. Preserve it so that it might continue to have the potency necessary to do the work God is inviting them to do. I think this is a very good question for all of us, even in this day and age. How do we preserve that which makes us valuable as God's children? How do we take care of it in order that it might have an effect in the world, making the difference that God hopes to see? I was reminded of a conference that I went to two years ago at Trinity Church down in Lower Manhattan. I don't know how many of you are aware of Trinity Church in Lower Manhattan, but it was one of the first Church of England's establishments, um, and later became a part of the Episcopal Church in its development. It has been there for a very long time, and Trinity Church owns a great deal of Lower Manhattan because it was given it back before all of that was developed. Over the years, they've sought to sell off a lot of their land that now is inhabited by all kinds of things that have nothing to do with church, but they have continued to try to use their wealth for the goodness of the gospel. And one thing they do is every year have a conference. It's in the winter. And in 2015, the subject was economic inequality. Trinity is able to bring in some great speakers, people that none of us could ever afford to come and hear in person. And you can go and attend the conference for little to no charge, but there are also satellite stations throughout the country so that people can hear these speakers speak. And there were a handful of us that went down on the Thursday night that kicked off that conference in 2015 to hear Cornell West speak. I remember being struck by his ability to keep us engaged for close to 45 minutes, if not more, with a little piece of paper that he had leaning on a music stand. And I took many notes from his talk and I was reminded of them as I came to preparing for this Sunday's service. If you're not familiar with Cornell West, the Wikipedia definition 
has of him that he's an American philosopher, political activist, social critic, author, public, internet, public intellectual, and he would say Christian, the son of a Baptist minister. I wrote down and remembered for today his words about what justice looks like. Justice, he said, is what love looks like in public. Tenderness is what love looks like in private. He had more good things to say, and in his talk, he recalled other thinkers and writers in the Christian faith over the last century. One of the people that he brought to all of our attention is W.H. Auden, who lived pretty much in the entire 20th century, began at the very beginning and died in 1973, I think it is. He was a prolific writer of prose essays and reviews on literary, political, psychological, and religious subjects. And W.H. Auden said this, As a Christian, my job is to muster the courage to love my crooked neighbor with my crooked heart. I think that's a profound sentence. Muster the courage to love my crooked neighbor with my crooked heart. In our culture, we like to consider that love is something that is earned. And so we can relieve ourselves, perhaps, of, not, of the burden of having to love someone else because they haven't warranted it by their actions or their words. But W.H. Auden reminds us that we are called as Christians to love our crooked neighbor and reminds us that we can only do that because we have a crooked heart too. We don't love our neighbor out of our own righteousness, out of our own accomplishment or perfection. We love our neighbor because we are one with our neighbor and we remember that God is the one that's loving our neighbor through us, we'll never have the strength to do it on our own. Another person that Cornell West brought to our attention is Reinhold Niebuhr, again, a huge figure in the 20th century, and maybe that's a name you do recognize. He was an American theologian, an ethicist, commentator on politics and public affairs, he was a professor at Union Theological Seminary for 30 years. He received the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1964. As a public theologian, he wrote and spoke frequently about the intersection of religion, politics, and public policy. And he said, Justice must be rescued by something deeper than justice. You probably have witnessed that in the fight for justice, we can become self-righteous and even use the very tools that we are beating down to do the beating. It's a slippery slope, our fight for justice. And it can be turned into something that's just as bad as that which was coming at us. So Reinhold Niebuhr reminds us that justice must be rescued by something deeper than justice. And that thing is love. It's love that strengthens us 
to do the justice that God is calling us to do. And it's love that grounds us to do the justice that God is calling us to do. And it's love that corrects us in our efforts to do the justice that God is calling us to do. And it's the love that assures us in our failed attempts to do the justice that God is calling us to do. A few weeks ago, I headed down to the Women's March in D.C. I ended up driving because I took a couple of people with me and I missed the reservation for the Ridgefield bus since I was uncertain of the number of my party. We left on Friday and because we had missed the ease of getting on a bus early in the morning and returning late at night, I had made arrangements for us to stay in a fellowship hall of an Episcopal church in Poolsville, Maryland. They had some couches there that they said we could sleep on. So we set off here around 3 in the afternoon, and as you know, anyone who travels 95, everybody's on 95 on a Friday afternoon. Everybody. We arrived at St. Peter's in Poolsville, Maryland at 11.30 p.m. So glad to see those couches. The next morning we got up and we went to the stop in Maryland that's the furthest most on the red line. I think it's Shady Grove or Shady Brook or something like that. And when we pulled in, there were cars everywhere parking. And as we made our way up to the low, upper levels of the garage, because there were so many parked cars on all the previous levels, I began to cry looking at these hundreds of people already gathered at the entrance of the train station. Buses pulling up and more people getting out. There had to be at least 200 people already standing there. When we came into the midst of all of those people, men and women, various ages and hues, it was inspiring. There were people there that were in their 70s and 80s who were still doing the work that they were doing in the 60s. There were people there with their small children who they put up on their shoulders because it was so crowded around their knees. There were signs, and it was fun to see the artistic expression on those signs. And, you know, it was interesting because when I was getting ready to go on the march, and people said to me, why are you going? I said, I'm not really sure yet. But as I engaged that day, it came, became aware to me the significance of the day. We got on the train. Everyone was peaceful, which was remarkable in itself because you know what it's like to stand on a crowded platform and the one train comes along, and everyone usually wants on it. But people were cordial to one another and captured and caught up in the fellowship that was taking place. So when we got into D.C. and lines of people trying to exit the train station, coming out into the city and seeing hundreds of people there, thousands of people there, it was amazing to me, the variety of humanity all the different people, and I thought, this is just one small fraction of the created order. The experience for me became inspirational to see all of these different faces who were yoked together, united, because they were on the margin. They felt vulnerable, threatened, afraid, but knew in gathering together that there was strength and assurance, and that's what came from that Women's March for me a remembrance of what can happen when we gather together. There was a woman there who had a sign tied around her neck that had a picture, and below it it said, Since 1913. A photo of Alice Paul and some of her people who had shown up in Washington fighting for the women's right to vote. 
And as I looked at the faces of those who were old and young, especially, I became aware of the shoulders that I have stood on, that I stand on in order to have the life that I have, and the people who will need to stand on my shoulders in order to have the life that they have. And it became inspiring and encouraging. It reminded me, helps me muster the courage to love my crooked neighbor with my crooked heart. Last Sunday, there was the opportunity to come and gather at Ballard Park in a candlelight vigil around the issues surrounding immigrants and refugees, and I thought, I think I'll go, but why? I don't know. To gather with other people there, though, it became evident what the purpose was, at least for me. Hearing people's stories, seeing their faces, began again to remind me of the need to carry the banner and to help those who are on the margin and to use my place in life for the benefit of those who are vulnerable and outcast. On Friday this past week, we saw the movie Hidden Figures, and it was inspiring. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's about three women who were a part of NASA during our first launch of a man into space. Three African-American women in the early 60s. And I watched them, and I was inspired by them here they are working full-time, and I was struck by the weight of their lives and the responsibilities, and they had to go home and fix dinner, and they didn't have a microwave. And packaged food was not the industry that it is now. You couldn't open a plastic tin and have mixed greens, take out a few frozen meatballs and have a meat dish. And I was amazed at their fortitude, and I thought, okay, okay, I won't get tired then. I won't allow myself to get tired. I stand on your shoulders, and someone's going to stand on mine. This is one of the ways that I preserve my saltiness. That I preserve the value of what's needed in the world as I understand God calling me to do that. And that's God's invitation to us as God's people. How is it that we preserve that which we have been given, the values that we have in our humanity? And I was even struck in the movie of the significance of the church for these women and for all of the black community to come together to remember their value, the value that God has given them. Perhaps you, you saw the um, piece from our presiding bishop, uh, Michael Curry, um, in the lead-up to the election, um, in, in the lead-up to the inauguration, and he was responding to people's um, communication to him about how is it that we can have a prayer service in the National Cathedral when some people felt so strongly against President Trump. And Bishop Curry spoke to that, and he said, you know, I grew up in the civil rights time as a child, and every Sunday we got down on our knees and we prayed for our leaders, who were often the very people who were oppressing us. That's right, we have to come together to preserve our saltiness, to preserve the very value that God has put within us for the sake of God's kingdom. And again, I'm reminded of Cornel West's words already two years ago. When he asked us there, will, your, will you allow your righteous indignation to be channeled into love and justice, or will you allow it to be channeled into hatred and violence? He went on to say, as Christians, we are stuck with non-market values. We cannot act as if the kingdom of God is just a brand. We must be committed to militant tenderness. That's our invitation 
as children made one with the triune God in our baptism. And as Cornell West reminded us, we are called to be faithful as Christian people, not successful in the eyes of the world. It's not a question, he said, of who is pure and pristine, but a question of who has the courage to see the good in another in order to create the common good. That's our call as followers of the living God. We refer to this living God as the triune God. But Jesus reminds us that we must remember that those who aren't against us are for us. And so if people call God by another name and are working to the very values that we cherish, made known to us in Christ, then we need to work together for the common good. This is made most evident to us in the words of the prophet Isaiah, reminding us to use our place to untie the thongs of oppression and the burden and yokes that people carry upon them, to feed the hungry, to draw the marginalized, the homeless into our homes. How is it that we respond to the needs of a hurting world as God's people here, this little Episcopal outpost in Ridgefield? God calls us to this fast. And God asks us to do this fast. And God promises to help us. Amen.